Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Today, Sun Prairie Tax Attorney Don Millis was picked by Speaker Robin Voss to fill a vacancy on the bipartisan Wisconsin Election Commission. Voss described Millis as a lifelong Republican. He had previously served as a commission on the state's Elections Administration Agency, as well as a staff member for Republican state senators. The State Journal reported that Millis will fill the seat previously held by Republican Commissioner Dean Knudsen, who unexpectedly resigned two weeks ago when he came under fire from GOP leadership for saying President Donald Trump lost the 2020 presidential election. Next Friday, the commission will elect its new chair and vote on nearly a dozen challenges filed against individual candidates, including a complaint against Trump-backed GOP gubernatorial candidate Tim Mickles. The Cap Times reports that a lawsuit seeking to bar three Republican members of Wisconsin's congressional delegation has been dismissed by a federal judge. The suit alleged that between November 8th of 2020 and January 6th of 2021, the Republican lawmakers fomented the January 6th attack on the Capitol by spreading lies about the November 2020 election being rigged. The defendants included U.S. Senator Ron Johnson and U.S. Representatives Scott Fitzgerald and Tom Tiffany. But according to U.S. District Judge Lynn Edelman, the plaintiff, the liberal Monaco Brewing Company Super PAC, did not have standing in federal court. A Waukesha court now will allow the state to continue to address PFAS contamination, including providing bottled water to residents in municipalities with contaminated wells, reports the Associated Press. The ruling will allow the DNR to continue cleaning up PFAS contamination and providing bottled water. The ruling was the most recent development involving a lawsuit filed by Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce to limit the agency's ability to investigate PFAS contamination and require responsible parties to clean up contaminated sites. The Waukesha judge had previously sided with the WMC, though he placed a hold on the decision in response to concerns that it would endanger public health and create regulatory confusion. On other environmental news, the builders of the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline are warning that gas prices will go up in Wisconsin if the pipeline is shut down. But environmental groups say that claim is misleading. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Enbridge's own experts have found that gas prices will indeed go up by about one-half cent if the line is shut down. Attorneys representing both environmental groups and the local Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa say that Enbridge is misleading the public over the price increase and that there will be little to no impact of gas pri- in gas prices if the line is shut down. The three candidates running for the Republican domi- nomination for Wisconsin Attorney General held their first forum last night. During the forum, held in downtown Milwaukee and hosted by the Conservative Federalist Society, two contenders outlined their plan to expand gun rights. The State Journal reports that former State Representative Adam Jarchow and Fond du Lac County DA Eric Tony both are running on a platform to restore gun rights for people convicted of nonviolent felonies after their sen- sentences end. Currently, all felons are banned from voting when their sentences end. Although the weather has only just begun to warm up, 
two of Madison's beaches already have been closed due to high amounts of blue-green algae. You heard Caitlin Davis warning you about that last night. Both the Memorial Union and Spring Harbor beaches closed today due to high amounts of the algae. The beaches will be able to reopen if and when levels of the algae go down. All 18 of Madison's other public beaches are open and safe for swimming. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,799 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the current seven-day average to 1,900 new cases each day over the past week. Over the past week, 12.7% of all tests have come back positive. There were nine recorded deaths from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday as well, bringing the total number of people who have died in Wisconsin to 13,049. Here in Dane County, there were 299 new COVID cases yesterday, as 61 people remain hospitalized from the virus. There were no deaths recorded in Dane County yesterday. And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. The Madison Common Council met last night to introduce two new alders and also to vote on plans to finally hold in-person meetings. But there were a lot more controversial items on last night's docket, including the final approval of the Metro Network redesign plan. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has more. The two new interim alders sworn in at last night's Common Council meeting were Bill Tischler, replacing Arvina Martin in District 11, and Matt Fair, replacing Christian Alburas in District 20. Last month, Eric Paulson was appointed to become Alder of District 3, replacing former Alder Lindsey Lemmer. Martin, Arboris, and Lemmer all announced their resignation earlier this year. Martin says that she resigned to focus more on family and her personal life. Alboris says that he resigned due to his plans to move outside of his district. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, Tischler works as a senior instructional media producer at UW-Madison, while Fair works as a teacher at the Mount Horb School District. Fair is no stranger to the council. He served as District 20 Alder from 2011 to 2019, when he did not seek re-election. Also at last night's meeting was a decision to start to move away from all virtual council meetings. Starting on July 19th, the meetings will move to a hybrid format of both virtual and and in person. District 12 Alder Syed Abbas says he is in full support of moving to the hybrid structure. I'm all in favor of innovation, more public engagement. I think so hybrid structure provides us that. So comfort of people in the room, they can run their meetings, but at the same time, people who have learning disability, people who have accessibility issue through their laptop or through technology issues, people who doesn't know how to use technology or simply those people who want to connect face to face and they want to connect with the community, they want to come in person. And also on the other side, because of the COVID health issues, people want to feel safe. We need to provide both options. Abbas further says that the hybrid structure will help lead to a more open government as people can give their public comment however they feel most comfortable. Both Abbas and District 15 Alder Grant Foster say that they would oppose going back to fully in-person meetings. 
Next on the agenda was the removal of protest petitions and property rezoning. A protest petition gives people a better chance at blocking the rezoning of a neighboring property. Under a protest petition, neighbors objecting to a development can ask for it to be approved by two-thirds majority of the council, rather than a simple majority. The removal of the protest petitions was originally brought forward by Alder Foster, along with Alders Yannette Figueroa Cole of District 10 and Patrick Heck of District 2. This change would remove the protest petitions and make all rezoning decisions need two-thirds approval. Foster says that this would remove the additional burden placed upon developers, but maintain the two-thirds majority so residents could still voice their concerns. An amendment to the ordinance, introduced by District 8 Alder Juliana Bennett and Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, would keep the removal of the protest petition, but keep the simple majority vote needed to rezone a property. That amendment passed by a 17-to-1 vote. Abbas, the sole alder voting against the removal, says that there is no need to remove the protest petitions. Since 2013, there have only been 13 protest petitions that have been presented to the council, and all but two rezoning proposals passed. Of the two that failed, one failed by over 50 percent, 6-to-13, and the other has been referred to later this month. We spent over two and a half hours on protest petition, and we can create any narrative, whatever we want, around social, racial justice, but fact is fact, and fact is there's no impact. And why we are spending so much time, the, the fact here is, which we should discuss rather than protest petition, that we should have discussed how to improve public input process where marginalized community can also get hurt. The council also voted unanimously to create a truth and reconciliation process for the city of Madison in order to build off of the work of the Race to Equity report about racial disparities in Madison nearly a decade ago. The final and most controversial item of the night was the passage of the Metro Network Redesign. Metro Network Redesign has been in the works for over a year and has remained a heated topic since it was introduced. During last November's budget deliberations, Alder Abbas, along with four other Alders, introduced an amendment to halt funds for the related bus rapid transit until plans for network redesign were completed. That amendment failed to pass last November. More recently, Madison Metro staffers have been holding public hearings with neighborhood groups around the city, where residents have voiced their concerns about having fewer bus stops around the city. Opponents speaking at those meetings include South Madison Unite and the Dane County NAACP, reports Isthmus newspaper. Critics of the plan say that the redesign will not give equal bus access to all citizens of Madison. One of those critics is Alder Abbas, who represents parts of the city's north side. He says that some direct bus routes will disappear in his district, meaning that residents will have to wait longer for bus access, especially on weekends. Those opportunities have been taken away from people. Those direct routes are gone. Those communities who deserve a better route, instead what they're getting is, which is insult and slap on the face of Northside resident, is instead of 30 minutes, they're getting 60 to 75 minutes. Furman, who voted for the resolution to adopt network redesign, says that he is excited to finally see the network redesign come to fruition. And it's just, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, I think everybody feels really confident. Well, not everybody. <laughs> most people that have been looking at it most closely, I would say, feel really confident that it's going to be way better service for a lot of people. Um, and of course, you know, some people will have poorer service, pretty limited. I mean, it's surprising how much better it's going to be 
and the trade-offs are, it, it, you know, it's, it's, I would say it's clearly going to be much better than what we have today. Ultimately, the Metro network redesign passed 14 to 6. The City Transportation Commission will now work to put the finishing touches on the plan and implement any final changes. The network redesign is scheduled to go into effect in summer 2023. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie With the leaked Supreme Court draft indicating that federal abortion protections could fall, states may soon be the arbiter of abortion protections. Democrats in Wisconsin are pushing to remove an arcane state law criminalizing abortion. WORT reporter Tegan Carter has the story. This morning, Governor Evers called a special session to ask legislators to repeal Wisconsin's current abortion law. The law, enacted in 1849, could go back into effect as soon as this month if the U.S. Supreme Court decides to overturn federal abortion protections in Roe. Representative Lisa Subek states that many Wisconsinites may be unaware that if Roe is overturned, abortion could immediately become illegal in the state of Wisconsin. Many people don't know. That if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion could be immediately illegal in the state of Wisconsin. Senator Melissa Agard states that the results of repealing Roe in Wisconsin are unclear, but that it could lead to criminal charges. We don't know clearly what it is um, that people will be charged with. There is the possibility um, of criminal charges being brought against um, doctors as well as patients. Uh, in Wisconsin. And we also know very much that um, repealing the right to abortion in Wisconsin is not going to prevent abortions from occurring in Wisconsin, um, and it's not going to prevent people from seeking access to abortion. The 1849 law states that any person apart from the mother could be subject to a Class H or a Class E felony, subjecting providers to anywhere between a $10,000 to $50,000 fine and 6 to 15 years in prison. There are provisions that make exceptions for pregnancies that would result in the death of the pregnant person, but Representative Subek points out that they are very, very limited. If somebody is facing a medical crisis that can have a negative impact on their health, um, they will not be able to get an abortion here in Wisconsin, and they may not be in a position where they have either the time or the ability to travel somewhere else and get it. Both legislators say they're concerned about those who would be unable to access safe and legal abortions, and Senator Agard makes it clear that those who do not have the means to leave the state for abortions are in the most danger. So folks with means certainly will travel to other states to have access to abortions, but people without means are um, much more likely to um, have harm done to themselves and potentially death. This is the 10th special session called by Governor Evers. In doing so, the governor can call on the legislature to meet to consider an urgent issue, but cannot make lawmakers pass any laws. Only one special session called by Governor Evers during his term regarding unemployment insurance resulted in the passage of a bill. So while this special session will most likely be gaveled in and gaveled out, legislators like Representative Subek and Senator Agard say they're still pleased that Governor Evers made the call even if the only thing it accomplishes is showing Wisconsinites where politicians stand. You know, we have the opportunity to make uh, electoral decisions this fall, and remembering that Governor Evers was on the side of the majority of people in Wisconsin, and the Republicans are defiant in hearing those voices, I think sends a strong message on how it is that people should be engaging electorally. The special session will be held June 22, 2022, but abortion will continue regardless of the results of the meeting. Representative Subek puts it plainly. This puts health and lives in danger. And we know from the days prior to Roe that when abortion is not legal, 
it doesn't mean that abortion goes away. It means that abortion is not safe and that causes irreparable harm. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. The time is now 6.22 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The town of Keele, northeast of Fond du Lac, has a population of only 3,400 residents, give or take. But the town became the center of a nationwide campaign after the Keele School Board began an investigation into allegations of bullying against a transgender student. It culminated with multiple bomb threats being called in against both the school and the town itself, forcing the cancellation of in-person classes as well as the town's Memorial Day parade. Earlier this week, our producer Nate Weggehouse spoke with Anne-Marie Hilton, an education reporter with USA Today who has been on the ground in Kiel, about how the issue went nationwide and how the town is reacting to the threats. So, Anne-Marie, just to sort of start things off here, what what's happening in Kiel? What happened to sort of start all of this? And then sort of going along those lines, why did uh, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or Will, file their lawsuit? In the middle of May, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty put out a press release um, letting people know that they had reached out to the Keele Area School District asking them to drop a Title IX investigation involving three eighth-grade boys um, using incorrect pronouns for another student in one of their classes. Um, And since then, that has turned into... Um, the community receiving some bomb threats and other safety concerns. Um, And the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty was brought into this because the parents of those three boys um, asked them to represent those families. And so this is all sort of stemming from a Title IX investigation. Uh, Could you sort of walk me through what is a Title IX investigation? Sure. Well, Title IX, um, it prohibits discrimination based on sex in education settings, and it applies to any school that receives federal funding. So our public schools do receive federal funding, so they are subject to Title IX. Um, And typically, Title IX investigations are pretty quiet, pretty private, um, because of confidentiality and the involvement, especially in K-12 settings with minors. So school districts typically aren't um, talking about that in a public setting or giving many details about that. And then sort of going from there, you sort of alluded to it earlier, but there have been several threats made against both the school district and the town itself over all of this. What can you sort of tell me about that? Sure. So we know that there were threats made um, on six different days over the span of about two weeks. Um, originally, those were targeting the schools and the person, the person or people. We don't know who is sending these threats or where they're actually coming from yet. Um, but it started with just targeting the schools in the district and then expanded to larger community areas like the public library, different municipal buildings, and even broader things like the roads or the utility companies in and around Keele. 
Um, and at the very end there, um, they were also talking about some areas in neighboring New Holstein, but um, the threats, there were threats on six different days. And sort of what sort of mood of the town right now with all of these uh, threats that are taking place? What what sort of the response that people in Kiel are taking to it? So a lot of the community members um, told me that it feels a little bit like the early days of the COVID pandemic, um, especially when the threats were happening, you know, back to back every day. Um, they felt like they weren't sure if they should go out or what they should do exactly. Um, but the community, uh, largely the police department, has really tried to find the um, unity and positivity in all of this. The police department in particular started a movement called Be the Light, where they were asking people in Kiel to um, turn on their porch lights and leave them on just to kind of bring a little bit more positivity and unity to the community. And now it seems like a lot of these threats and a lot of all of this has sort of blown up across the country here. Uh, I know that there's, you know, not too much is known about these threats, uh, but how, how did this become such a nationwide issue? How are people from across the country sort of learning about this? And, you know, again, we don't really know who's making these threats, but it's, it seems like, you know, this is coming from all over the country. People are sort of piling on this small town in northeastern Wisconsin. How, how did this get to this point? Well, on top of substantial coverage from local TV stations and local newspapers, um, we do know that one of the parents of the three boys who were involved in the investigation, as well as um, their attorney from the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, um, did appear on national TV news outlets. So that is one way that it has gotten national attention and has traveled outside of Northeast Wisconsin and even Wisconsin in general. Um, and in terms of what we know about the threats, there are the threats, the bomb threats to the larger community, and then threats were made specifically to Keel District, uh, school district staff members. And the FBI and the Wisconsin Department of Justice have been brought in to address some of that and help find out who is making those threats. And one man in California was arrested for threats that he made to um, a Kiel staff member, um, not the bomb threats, but other threats that were made directly to a staff member. And Anne-Marie, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts about any of this that you'd like to share with me? Uh, just anything that we didn't quite get to? Uh, I would just reiterate that with situations like this, the district is very limited in what it can say. So it is hard to know the details of what led to the Title IX investigation and other things involving the actual students um, because the district is legally bound not to talk about much of that. So it's really hard to know what's going on on that end. I've been talking with Anne-Marie Hilton, education reporter with USA Today Network uh, here in Wisconsin, about the town of Keele and the threats made against both the school district and the town for their Title IX investigation. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Over the past 40 years, the Lake Monona Bike Loop has become a local institution. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, Sean Bull examines why Mendota hasn't gotten the same treatment. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. 
If you're listening to this live, it's Bike Week in Madison. Right now, and all week long, there are events being held to celebrate Dane County's cycle culture and promote its growth for the future. Personally, that culture is one of my favorite things about living in Madison. I've never been a particularly athletic person, but I've always been more comfortable than most on a bike. Consequently, cycling has always been one of my favorite ways to explore my hometown. Name a trail in Dane County, I've probably ridden it at some point. And don't get me started on B-Cycle, the folks at Madison's Electric Bike Share are probably so sick of me at this point. What I'm saying is, it takes a lot of willpower to hold back from making this segment all bicycles all the time. So, for this week only, I'd like to talk about a lake loop. Not the Lake Monona bike loop, mind you, but we'll start there for the sake of comparison. Lake Monona is the second lake of the four in the Yahara River chain, and arguably the most celebrated of them all. In a 13-mile ride around the lake's shores, you'll pass iconic Madison landmarks like Monona Terrace, John Nolan Drive, and Ulbrick Gardens. The sections that don't belong on a postcard are at least, for the most part, inviting and safe. The loop winds through a lot of residential neighborhoods with low traffic, navigable even for families biking with children. With all these factors put together, it's a no-brainer that people have been biking around Lake Monona for a long time. Even in an official capacity, the route has been recognized for decades. As far back as the early 80s, Monona police officers would lead an annual awareness ride around the lake. And the infrastructure for this has only gotten better over the years. The cities of Madison and Monona have put a lot of effort into new pavement, safer intersections, and better signage, all to improve the experience of the thousands of people who ride this route every year. Still, as good as it's become, you can only ride the lake loop so many times. I have to admit, I get burned out on it occasionally. A man can only consume so much bait and ice cream every summer. So when this happens, where else can I turn? Lucky for me, Madison actually has at least two lakes to explore. You can't have a city on an isthmus with just one, and that's kind of our whole thing. Mendota is the first and largest of the Hara Four Lakes. It's just as important to the city of Madison as Lake Monona is, and it's just as close to downtown. And yet, Mendota has nothing like the Monona Lake Loop. For the rest of this episode, I'd like to speculate why. Let's start off with the obvious. Lake Mendota is big. The approximate route a Mendota bike loop would take is 22 miles long. The route is also noticeably more hilly than most of Monona. An experienced cyclist in a time crunch can knock out the Monona loop in under 90 minutes, but to bike Mendota, you have to set aside an afternoon. Honestly, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think many people would welcome the challenge. That's assuming, of course, that they could do the ride safely. The news earlier this week has highlighted once again how dangerous it is, even in a bike-friendly city like Madison, for bikers to ride in close proximity to cars. And on the north side of Lake Mendota, bikes and cars are about as close as can be. For five miles between Middleton and Westport, County Trunk M is a cyclist's only option. The busy two-lane highway has a paved shoulder but it's not even marked as a bike lane. There are quiet residential streets that serve the homes around the lake, but unlike the neighborhoods in Madison and Monona, none of them connect to each other, 
they all dead end. I know people who like riding around Mendota, but every one of them hates riding on County M. A final, less obvious obstacle is likely the web of bureaucracy that maybe the Monona Lake Loop didn't have to deal with. The Monona Loop is lucky in that you can bike around the whole lake while only passing through two cities. Nothing in government is easy, but coordinating between Madison and Monona really doesn't sound that bad. Now, let's say somebody wanted to draw up a master plan for the Mendota Lake Loop. By my count, they would have to involve the separate entities of Madison, Maple Bluff, Westport, Wanakee, Bishop's Bay, Middleton, Shorewood Hills, and the University of Wisconsin. If they really wanted to get ambitious, they would probably need to include the DNR, too. So, maybe we'll get a complete loop someday. A patchwork of disparate trails. But I'm not holding my breath for anything cohesive. There almost certainly will never be signposts. I hope my pessimism is misplaced, because a complete Lake Mendota loop has a lot of potential. The whole UW Lakeshore path leading into Shorewood Hills is already a great example of this. There's so many little quiet places to stop and admire the beauty of nature. Another of my favorite current Mendota rides starts at Tenney Park and goes up into Maple Bluff. Not only can you ride past the governor's mansion, the bluff itself has some of the biggest hills with the fewest cars in all of Madison. Bombing down Farwell Street towards Warner Park is absolutely worth the extra work to get up there. And though Governor Nelson isn't bikeable at the moment and isn't my favorite state park, putting a bike path through it would liven it up and go a long way towards solving the County M problem. If I've learned one thing while researching this piece, it's that we've made a lot of progress. Forty years ago, people may have been circling Lake Monona, but bike lanes had yet to be legalized by the Wisconsin legislature. If there's public interest in a Mendota loop, we'll make it happen somehow. Until then, I guess Madison's existing 100-plus miles of bike routes will have to do. A special thanks goes out this week to everyone who helped me try to track down the date when the Monona bike loop officially became a thing. We never found it, so if you think you know, please email me. This is going to bug me forever. Or, if you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's s-e-a-n dot b-u-l-l at w-o-r-t-f-m dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru... Rob McClure. Well, we did pretty well for rainfall out of this little system that passed today. Better than I had expected, anyway. And the rains were nice and slow and steady, just the way gardeners and farmers like to see them. Uh, 84 hundredths of an inch was the most recent tally at the airport, at least last I looked. So the totals were generally heavier up to the north and west of the city with... uh, 
1.36 inches reported at the Dells and 2.5 inches from a cooperative observer over in Rockbridge, which is in central Richland County. We've still not quite made up for the precipitation deficit that was left over from May, but we are making some pretty good headway on it at this point. I invite you to have a look at this little storm that passed today on the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening. That'll allow you to see the nice little leftward curl in the clouds that passed over southern Wisconsin earlier. That was the mid-level circulation, a mile or two of up above us with its uh, convergence and lift, which did a lot of the uh, precipitation production, while the surface circulation, which you can also see on the image in the yellow streamlines that are added over top of it, passes to our south down across northern or north-central Illinois. You'll also be able to see the towering up of the cumulus in the cool air that's now flowing southward behind the storm. The depth of those clouds uh, should dissipate with the lowering of the sun, but some of them uh, were deep enough to support some uh, transient showers underneath them earlier, so a a sprinkle or two could still pass as we go into the evening. Otherwise, the air mass pouring southward out of Canada should give us a dry and generally clear day tomorrow, though I'm expecting some shorter cumulus to become fairly widespread during the day. If you step back from the visible satellite and take the wider view of what's going on on the weather webpage with the water vapor image of North America, you'll see the longer west-to-east wave train in which today's system was embedded, pressing basically across the country at about the 43rd parallel, or from, say, southern Oregon across through Iowa and southern Wisconsin on over to Connecticut. And you'll also be able to note there the northward amplification that's just now starting to take place out over the west coast as a larger system swings northward up towards the Gulf of Alaska. That nascent upper ridging out to our west will eventually work eastward into the area and bring us warmer air as we get into next week. But first, it's going to flex the jet stream into a more northwest to southeast trajectory overhead here as we approach the weekend because the leftward spinning gyre of cold air that's currently whirling up over northern Ontario is not going to be going anywhere anytime soon, uh, at least uh, letting the uh, ridge advance eastward very far. And so that will play to our advantage on Friday. The jet stream will be backing southwestward into Iowa for a day or two while a stronger shortwave passes over the western ridge and continues to amplify it, drawing it back westward onto the uh, plains a bit. But come Saturday, when that little wave pushes over the top of the ridge and down this way, its circulation is going to bulge that ridge back eastward just far enough to send the jet stream back overhead here, allowing the wave then to track directly over us pretty much as it heads southeastward, giving us, I think, a round of showers that day, perhaps with some embedded thunderstorms this time around. So uh, Saturday is looking decidedly wetter than it had done. That tracking certainly isn't for certain at this point, but it does seem to have become the consensus view of the medium-range models at the moment. We should clear behind that wave uh, for a dry day Sunday, and then it does appear we will see that western ridge break uh, eastward a little more convincingly in the first coming days of uh, next week on Monday and Tuesday, so warmer at that time, probably up in the mid-80s at least. But getting back to tonight, the uh, deep piles of cumulus, uh, again, possibly with a small shower or two beneath some of them, will uh, subside as the uh, evening goes forward, leaving what will be eventually partly cloudy skies through the balance of the night. 
Uh, we'll generally see clearer skies to the north and west. We currently have uh, more cloud cover moving into the north and west areas of Madison. That will pass down over the city probably over the coming hour or two, but should clear out from there. And areas east of Madison should clear as well as we go through the evening. Temperatures uh, will uh, drop to the low 50s on light westerly winds, generally uh, coming down below 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow I'm expecting to see some uh, lingering low clouds or perhaps even some patchy fog in spots in the morning hours since we'll have light winds overnight and a fair amount of moisture in the lower atmosphere. But incoming drier air should scour out the clouds reasonably quickly and lift the moisture back up into uh, midday cumulus. Temperatures will reach the mid-70s on northwesterly winds, uh, coming up to 8 to 12 miles per hour during the midday. High clouds will encroach uh, as the cumulus start to fade uh, later in the day tomorrow and into tomorrow evening. Temperatures will drop back to the mid-50s tomorrow night on light westerly winds backing southwest. Friday, we'll see a fair bit of passing high and mid-level clouds, I think thicker to the south and west of Madison and thinner to the north and east, at least generally speaking. And I'm thinking precipitation is going to stay confined southwest of the city, but a passing light shower is not impossible. Temperatures will reach the low 70s on light westerly winds. Clouds may uh, clear for a while late day before high clouds then start to reinvade from the northwest overnight into Saturday. We'll drop to around, uh, well, the upper 50s in the overnight. And Saturday, we're still seeing uh, slightly different scenarios between the models as far as uh, precipitation placement and timing and intensity go that day. Uh, the later day period seems to be uh, at least currently favored on the models. Temperatures will hold in the low 70s that day on light southwesterly winds. I think uh, precipitation should knock off as we go overnight or at least towards uh, early Sunday morning with the passage of that upper wave to our east, leaving Sunday... The balance of the day anyway, dry and I think slightly warmer as uh, ridging does begin to edge in from the plains. So a high temperature in the uh, mid to upper 70s on Sunday. Uh, just now down at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 57 degrees. The dew point temperature is 53. Uh, largely clear overhead at the station at the moment. There is some broken low cumulus up at about 1,500 feet visible to all sides. Uh, winds are uh, light easterly, generally below 5 miles per hour, and the barometer is uh, increasing at 29.90 inches of mercury. It's now 6.48 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the late 60s for part two of our remembrance of Madison men who died in Vietnam. Stu Levitan has the honor roll on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, Our Vietnam Casualties, Part 2. Nine men died there in 1968. 
Army Private First Class Edgar Gerlach, 20, a tank driver, is killed January 30 at the Pleiku base camp during a mortar attack. A 1965 graduate of Robert M. LaFollette High School, Gerlach was a counselor at the Monona Grove YMCA and a life scout in Boy Scout Troop 150, where he received the God and Country Award and was elected to the Order of the Arrow. Army Corporal Bruce Knox, 20, whose parents Warner and Beatrice live at 1862 Fisher Street, dies a hero near Huey in Tuatin province on February 4th, as he twice exposes himself to hostile fire to rescue and administer first aid to a wounded comrade. A graduate of Central High School and member of St. Joseph's Catholic Church, Knox worked at Gisholt Machine Company before being drafted. In September, the Army posthumously awards Knox the Purple Heart, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Air Medal, and other commendations. Marine Private Thomas J. Blaha, 19, who attended West High School, is a casualty of ground combat in Tuatin Province on February 8th. His parents, who live at 621 Pickford Street, learn of his death on Valentine's Day, two years to the day after he joined the Marines. Blaha arrived in Vietnam six days before Christmas, 1967. Two men are casualties of ground combat in Quang Tri province within three weeks of each other in the late winter. Marine Lance Corporal Lawrence J. Herfel, 19, whose parents live at 922 Noble Lane, dies February 24th. Herfel joined the Marines in August 1966, two months after graduating from Robert M. LaFollette High School. And Marine Private First Class Daniel Lloyd Meisenberg, 18, 117 South Marquette Street, dies March 11th. Meisenberg joined Marines a month after graduating from Central High School in 1967. He'd been in-country seven weeks at the time of his death. Born in Rice Lake, Meisenberg grew up with his family at 821 Regent Street in the Greenbush neighborhood, attending St. Joseph's Catholic Church and School. The family moved to the east side when their house was raised for urban renewal. Army Specialist 4th Class Bernard Bernie Mazursky, 20, whose mother and sisters live at 314 South Orchard Street, is killed in an ambush in Contum on May 4th. A 1966 graduate of Central University High School and member of Beth Israel Center, Mazursky was a freshman at the University of Wisconsin when he gave up his student deferment and enlisted along with his best friend in December 1966. Army Specialist 4th Class James Leahy, 25, an information specialist with the 39th Army Engineer Combat Battalion and the only son of the head of the Madison Draft Board, dies August 8th of wounds received when his vehicle struck a landmine near Chulai, just south of Da Nang. A graduate of Queen of Peace School and Edgewood High School, he enlisted in the Army after graduating from Milton College in 1967, so there wouldn't be accusations of favoritism against his father, Maurice, 4114 Meyer Avenue. The senior Leahy, a World War II veteran, a safety specialist at Oscar Meyer Company, is head of Draft Board 13, which handles conscription for city residents. Army Lieutenant Harry B. Hamilton III, 24, formerly of 4213 Odana Road, dies on September 14th on board the hospital ship Repose of wounds received when his encampment came under heavy fire seven days prior. 
Hamilton graduated from West High School in 1963 and the UW in 1967, where he was in the ROTC program. In his nine months in Vietnam, he had been awarded three Purple Hearts, a Presidential Citation, the Army Commendation Medal for Heroism, the Bronze Star for Valor, the Air Medal, the Soldier's Medal, and several other commendations. Navy Hospital Corpsman 3rd Class Dan Michael Bennett, 21, is killed by rifle fire on Foxtrot Ridge December 11th after he leaves his secure position to administer aid to a wounded Marine. A native Madisonian whose parents and nine siblings all live on the east side, he was a 1965 graduate of East High School. Bennett's wife and 18-month-old son Dan Jr. live at 11A Wright Court. Six more fell in 69. Army Specialist 4th Class Lyle C. Hansborough, 25, whose widowed mother lives at 4817 Bayfield Terrace, is killed in action in Gyadin Province on March 17th. A graduate of West High School and Whitewater State University, he was drafted in February 1968. Navy Medical Corpsman Gary Johnson, 3725 Hammersley Avenue, is killed in a night search-and-destroy mission southeast of Da Nang on April 30th, three days before his 22nd birthday. The 1965 graduate of Central High School and member of Glenwood Moravian Church had been in-country for 44 days. Two members of the West High School class of 1967 die within a month of each other this spring. Army Specialist 5th Class James V. Spurley, Jr., 20, 1602 Norman Way, is killed during a rocket and mortar attack on an aircraft landing zone northwest of Saigon on May 11th, during the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Spurley entered the Army's 1st Air Cavalry in February 1968, arriving in Vietnam that July. A former carrier boy for the Capital Times, he attended Dale Heights Presbyterian Church. His classmate, Army Private Thomas A. Geeson, 20, 446 Hilltop Drive, is killed in action June 6th. Geeson worked at the Pure Oil Company at Westgate Mall before entering the Army in May 1968. He was sent to Vietnam that December. And a member of the West High Class of 1965, two-time Purple Heart recipient Marine Corporal Charles R. Le Bosquet, is killed in action in Quam Nam Province August 21st. A platoon radio man with the 1st Marine Division, the 21-year-old lived at 4409 Cherokee Drive and attended the University of Wisconsin. Le Bosquet entered the Marines in August 1968, arriving in Vietnam this past February. A member of First Baptist Church, Le Bosquet is survived by his parents, who live at 2555 University Avenue, and his wife, the former Diane Thorstad, and brother Marine Corporal John of San Francisco. And Army Specialist 4th Class Dennis W. Shaw, 21, 1101 Mendota Street, East High School Class, 1966, is killed in a non-combat vehicle crash on September 11th. A native Madisonian and a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, he entered the Army in March 1968 and was sent to Vietnam a year later. May all their memories be for blessing. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, sacrifice-saluting WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan.
And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And thanks to all of you who pledged last week during our pledge drive to keep this independent news on the air. Thanks also to my co-host, Vicki Iden, for covering for me last week while I was out. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Tegan Carter. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie-Haup produced it. Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. And we want to wish a big welcome back to our receptionist, Bill Kingsbury, who's back at the desk out in the lobby. It's nice to see the lobby staffed properly once again after the pandemic. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>